Section 7 of The Art or Craft of Rhetoric. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Amelia Chesley. The Art or Craft of Rhetoric by Leonard Cox. Of an Oration Demonstrative. The use of an oration demonstrative is in praise or dispraise, which kind or manner of oration was greatly used sometime in common actions, as doth declare the orations of Demosthenes, and also many of Thucydides' orations. And there been three manners of orations demonstrative. The first containeth the praise or dispraise of persons. As if a man would praise the king's highness, or dispraise some ill person, it must be done by an oration demonstrative. The second kind of an oration demonstrative is, wherein is praised or dispraised not the person, but the deed, as if a thief put himself in jeopardy for the safeguard of a true man against other thieves and murderers. The person cannot be praised for his vicious living, but yet the deed is worthy to be commended. Or if one should speak of Peter's denying of Christ, he hath nothing to dispraise the person, save only for this deed. The third kind is, wherein is lauded or blamed neither person nor deed, but some other thing, as virtue, vice, justice, injury, charity, envy, patience, wrath, and such like. Parts of an oration. The parts of an oration prescribed of rhetoricians are these, the preamble or exordant, the tale or narration, the proving of the matter or contention, and the conclusion, of the which parts mention shall be made hereafter in every kind of orations, for they are not found generally in every oration, but some have more parts and some less. Of the preamble. Generally, the preamble, not alone in oration demonstrative, but also in the other two, is contained and must be fetched out of three places, that is to say, of benevolence, attention, and to make the matter easy to be known, which the rhetoricians call docility. Benevolence is the place whereby the hearer is made willing to hear us, and it is contained in the thing that we speak of, in them whom we speak to, and in our own person. The easiest and most used place of benevolence consisteth in the office or duty of the person when we show that it is our duty to do that we be about. Out of this place is set the preamble of St. Gregory Nazazane, made to the praise of St. Basil, where he saith that it is his duty to praise St. Basil for three causes, for the great love and friendship that hath been always between them, and again for the remembrance of the most fair and excellent virtues that were in him, and thirdly, that the church might have an example of a good and holy bishop. Truly by our author's license, methinketh that in the preamble Nazazine doth not only take benevolence out of the places of his own person, but also out of the other two, when he showeth the cause of his duty, for in praising his friend he did but his duty. In praising his virtues, he came to the place of benevolence of him that he spake of, as touching the example that the church should have. It was for their profit, and concerning the place of benevolence taken of them that he spake to. But our author regarded chiefly the principal proposition, which was that St. Gregory Nazazine, 
was bound to praise St. Basil. A like example of benevolence taken out of the place of office or duty is in the oration that Tully made for the poet Archias, which beginneth thus. My lords that be here judges, if there be in me any wit, which I know is but small, or if I have any crafty use of making an oration, wherein I deny not, but that I have meetly exercised myself, or if any help to that science cometh out of other liberal arts, in whom I have occupied all my life, surely I am bound to no man more for them than to Archias, which may lawfully, if I may do any man any profit by them, challenge a chief portion for him therein. Out of this place did the same Tully fetch the beginning of his first epistle, in whom he writeth to one Lentul on this manner. I do so my duty in all points toward you, and so great is the love and reverence that I bear unto you, that all other men say that I can do no more, and yet me seemeth that I have never done that that I am bound to do, either to you or in your cause. We may also get benevolence by reason of them whom we make our oration of, as if we say that we can never praise him too highly, but that he is worthy much more laud and praise. And so taketh St. Nazazine benevolence in his said oration for St. Basil. Also of them afore whom we speak, as if we say it is for their profit to laud or praise the person, and that we know very well how much they have always loved him, and that he ought therefore to be praised the more for their sakes. The manner is also to get us benevolence in the preface of our oration, by pinching and blaming of our adversary, as doth Tully in the oration that he made for one Aulus Cecina, wherein he beginneth his poem thus. If temerity and lack of shame could as much prevail in pleas afore the justices, as doth audacity and temerious boldness in the fields and desert places, there were no remedy, but even so must Aulus Cecina be overcome in this matter by Sextus Abusius impudence, as he was in the field overcome by his insidious audacity. And these be the common forms of benevolence. A man may also fetch his proem out of the nature of the place where he speaketh, as Tully doth in the oration made for Pompeius, for the sending of him into Asia against King Mithridates of Pontus and King Tigranes of Armenia on this manner. How be it, my lords and masters of this noble city of Rome, I have all times thought it a singular rejoice to me if I might once see you gathered together in a company to hear some public oration of mine. And again, I judge no place to be so ample and so honorable to speak in as this is, etc. Or he may begin at the nature of the time that it is then, or at some other circumstance of his matter, as Tully taketh the beginning of his oration for Celius at the time, this wise. If so be it, my lord's judges, any man be now present here that is ignorant of your laws, of your process in judgments, and of your customs, surely he may well marvel what so heinous a matter this should be, that it only should be fit upon in an high feast day, when all the commonality after their old custom are given to the sight of plays, ordained after a perpetual usage for the nuns for them, all matters of the law laid for the time utterly apart. He began also another oration for one Sextus Rossius, 
out of the danger of the season that he spake in. One may beside these use other manner of proems, which because they are not set out of the very matter itself, or else the circumstances, as in these aforesaid, they are called peregrine or strange proems, and they be taken out of sentences, solemn petitions, manners or customs, laws, statutes of nations and countries. And on this manner doth Aristides begin his oration made to the praise of Rome. Demosthenes, in his oration made against Eschines, took his preface out of a solemn petition, beseeching the goddess that he might have as good favor in that cause as he had found in all other matters that he had done afore for the commonwealth. In like manner beginneth Tully the oration that he made for one Morena, and also the oration that he made unto the Romans after his return from exile. He beginneth also another oration, which he made as touching a law decreed for the division of fields among the commons out of a custom among them, on this wise. The manner and custom of our old fathers of Rome hath been, etc., and this is the manner of prefaces in any oration, which is also observed in the making of epistles, howbeit there is far less craft in them than is in an oration. There is yet another form and manner to begin by insinuation, wherefore it behoveth to know that insinuation is when in the beginning, if the matter seem not laudable or honest, we find an excuse therefore. Example. Homer, in his Iliad, describeth one Thersites, that he was most foul and evil-favoured of all the Greeks that came to the battle of Troy, for he was both goggle-eyed and lame on the one leg, with crooked and pinched shoulders, and a long piked head bald in very many places. And beside these faults, he was a great foolish babbler, and right foul-mouthed, and full of debate and strife, carrying always against the heads and wise men of the army. Now if one would take upon him to make an oration to the praise of this lossal, which matter is of little honesty in itself, he must use instead of a preface an insinuation, that what thing poets or common fame doth either praise or dispraise ought not to be given credence to, but rather to be suspect. For once it is in the nature of poets to feign and lie, as both Homer and Virgil, which are the princes and heads of all poets, do witness themselves. Of whom Homer saith that poets make many lies, and Virgil saith the most part of the scene is but deceit. Poets have seen bleak fowls under the earth, poets have sinned and made many lies of the pale kingdom of Plato, and of the water of Stege and the dogs in hell. And again, common rumors, how often they've been vain. It is so open that it need not to be declared. Wherefore, his trust is that the hearers will more regard his saying than feigned fables of poets and flying tales of light folks, which are for the more part the grounders of fame and rumors. An example may be set out of the declamation that Erasmus made to the praise of foolishness. Another example hath the same Erasmus in his second book of Copia, which is this. Plato, in the fifth dialogue of his communality, willeth that no man shall have no wife of his own, but that every woman shall be common to every man. If any man then would either praise or defend this mind of Plato, 
which is both contrary to Christ's religion and to the common living of men, he might, as Erasmus teaches, begin thus. I know very well that this matter which I have determined to speak of will seem unto you at the first hearing not only very strange, but also right abominable, but that notwithstanding, if it will please you a little while to defer your judgment till ye have heard the sum of such reasons as I will bring forth in the cause, I doubt nothing but that I shall make the truth so evident that you all will with one assent approve it, and knowledge that ye have been hitherto marvellously deceived in your opinion. And some del to alleviate your minds, ye shall understand that I am not myself author of the thing, but is the mind and saying of the excellent and most highly named philosopher Plato, which was undoubted so famous a clerk, so discreet a man, and so virtuous in all his deeds, that ye may be sure he would speak nothing but it were on right perfect ground, and that the thing were of itself very expedient, though peradventure it show for otherwise at the first hearing. In all prefaces or preambles must be good heed taken that they be not too far fet nor too long. These effectuous words, I rejoice, I am sorry, I am marvel, I am glad for your sake, I desire, I fear, I pray God, and such other like, be very apt for a preface. Of the second place of a preface called Attention, the hearers shall be made attent or diligent to give audience if the orator make promise that he will show them new things or else necessary or profitable, or if he say that it is an hard matter that he hath in handling or else obscure and not easy to be understood except they give right good attendance. Wherefore, it is expedient that if they will have the perception of it that they give a good ear. But as concerning the newness or profit of the matter, it maketh not all only the hearer to give a good ear, which thing is called attention, but also it maketh him well willing to be present, which is benevolence. Docility. Docility, whereby we make the matter plain and easy to be perceived, is not greatly required in this kind of oration, for it is belonging properly to dark and obscure causes in which we must promise that we will not use great ambages, or to go, as men say, round about the bush, but to be short and plain. Of narration which is the second part of an oration. The narration or tale wherein persons are praised is the declaring of their life and doings after the fashion of an history. The places out of which it is sought are the person's birth, his childhood, his adolescency, his man's state, his old age, his death, and what followeth after. In his birth is considered of what stock he came, what chanced at the time of his nativity or nigh upon, as in the nativity of Christ shepherds heard angels sing. In his childhood are marked his bringing up, and tokens of wisdom coming, as Horace in his fourth satire showeth, how in his childhood his father taught him by examples of such as were then living to flee from vice and to give himself to virtue. In adolescence is considered whereto he then giveth himself, as in the first comedy of Terence one Simo telleth his servant Sophia, 
but though all young men for the more part give themselves to some peculiar thing wherein they set their chief delight as some to have goodly horses some to cherish hounds for hunting and some are given only to their books his son panphilus loved none of these more one than another and yet in all these he exercised himself measurably in man's state and old age is noted what office or rule he bare among his citizens or in his country what acts he did how he governed such as were under him how he prospered and what fortune he had in such things as he went about example hereof is in saluste which compareth together cato and caesar saying that both their stock age and eloquence were almost like and egal their excellency and greatness of spirit and wit was also like an egal and like fame and worship had they both attained howbeit not by a like way caesar was had in great estimation for his benefits and liberality cato had gotten him a name for his perfect and upright living caesar was praised for his gentleness and pity cato was honored for his earnestness and surety the tether won much brute by giving large gifts by helping such as were in distress and by forgiving of trespasses done against him cato's fame did spread because he would neither be forgiven of none offence neither forgive none other but as any man had deserved so to cause him to be dealt with in the one was great refuge to such as were in misery in the other was sore punishment and pernition to misdoers and evil transgressors of the law briefly to conclude it was all caesar's mind and pleasure to labor diligently night and day in his friends causes to care less for his own business than theirs to deny nothing that was worthy to be asked his desire was evermore to be in war to have a great host of men under his governance that by his noble and hardy facts his valiantness might be the more known and spread abroad contrarily all cato's study was on temperance and to do in no manner otherwise than was convenient and fitting for such a man as he was and chiefly he set his mind to severity he never made no comparison with the rich man in richesse nor with the mighty man in power but if need required with the hardy man in boldness with the temperate in moderation with the good man in innocency and just dealing he cared not for the name it was sufficient to him to have the deed and so the less he cared for glory the more always he obtained many such comparisons very profitable for this intent are also in plutarch in his book of noble men's lives a goodly ensemble of this place is in the oration that hermolaus barbarus made to the emperor frederick and maximilian his son which for because it is so long i let it pass a like ensample is in tully's oration that he made to the people of rome for pompeius to be sent against mithridates some there be that divide the lots of persons into three kinds of goods beginning the narration at them which thing our author doth not greatly commend but rather in rehearsing of any person's deeds if there cannot be kept an order of history and many things must be spoken it were after his mind best to touch first his acts done by prudence and next by justice thirdly by fortitude of the mind and last by temperance 
and so to gather their narration out of this four cardinal virtues. As if one should praise St. Austin, after that he hath spoken of his parenteal, and bringing up in youth, and is come to the rehearsal of his acts, they may be conveniently distributed into the places of virtues. On this manner did Tully praise Pompey. I suppose, saith he, that in him that should be a head captain over a great army ought to be four things, knowledge of war, valiantness, authority, and felicity. Here is to be noted that in rehearsing any person's acts, we may have our chief respect to some peculiar and principal virtue in him, enlarging and exalting it by amplification in manner of a digression. Our author in this work maketh no mention of the last place, that is death, and such things as follow after. But in another greater work he declareth it thus briefly. The death of the person hath also his praises, as of such which have been slain for the defense of their country or prince. A very goodly example for the handling of this place is in an epistle that Angel Polician writeth in his fourth book of epistles to James Antiquary of Lawrence Medicis, how wisely and devoutly he disposed himself in his deathbed, and of his departing, and what chanced at that time. And so to conclude, an oration demonstrative, wherein persons are lauded, is in an historical exposition of all his life in order, and there is no difference between this kind and an history, save that in histories we be more brief and use less curiosity. Here all things be augmented and colored with as much ornaments of eloquence as can be had. Confirmation of our purpose and confuting or reproving of the contrary, which are the parts of contention, are not requisite in this kind of oration. For here are not treated any doubtful matters to whom contention pertaineth. Nevertheless, sometime it happeneth, howbeit it is seldom, that a doubt may come which must be either defended or at the least excused. Example. The French men in old time made mighty war against the Romans, and so sore besieged them that they were by compulsion constrained to fall to composition with the French men for an huge sum of gold to be paid to them for the breaking of the siege. But being in this extreme misery, they sent for one Camillus, whom not very long afore they had banished out of the city, and in his absence made him dictator which was the chiefest dignity among the Romans, and of so great authority that for the space of three months, for so long dured the office most conveniently, he might do all thing at his pleasure, whether it concerned death or no, for no man so hardy once to say nay against anything that he did, so that for the space he was as a king, having all in his own mere power." Now it chanced that while this sum was in paying, and not fully weighed, Camillus, of whom I said afore, that being in exile he was made dictator, came with an army, and anon bade cease of the payment, and that each party should make ready to battle, and so he vanquished the Frenchmen. Now if one should praise him of his noble fates, it should seem that this was done contrary to the law of arms, to defeat the Frenchmen of the ransom due to them, since the compact was made afore, wherefore it is necessary for the orator to defend this deed, and to prove that he did nothing contrary to equity. 
For the which purpose he hath two places, one apparent, which is a common saying usurped of the poet, Delos an viris quis in ofte requirat, that is to say, who will search whether the deed of enemy against enemy be either guile or pure valiantness. But for that in war law is as well to be kept as in other things. This saying is but of a feeble ground. The other is of a more strong assurance, which Titus Livius writeth in his fifth book from the building of Rome, where he rehearseth this history now mentioned. And that answer is this, that the compact was made to pay the foresaid ransom after that Camillus was created dictator, at what time it was not lawful that they which were of far less authority, yea, and had put themselves wholly in his hand, should intermeddle them with any manner of treaties without his license, and that he was not bound to stand to their bargain. The which argument is deduct out of two circumstances, whereof one is the time of the making of the compact, and the other the persons that made it, which two circumstances may briefly be called when and who. Likewise, if an oration should be made to the laud of St. Peter, it behoveth to excuse his denying of Christ, that it was rather of divine power and will than otherwise, for a comfortable example to sinners of grace if they repent. This is the manner of handling of an oration demonstrative in which the person is praised. The author in his greater work declareth the fashion by this example. If one would praise King Charles, he should keep in his oration this order. First in declaring his parenteal, that he was King Pippin's son, which was the first of all kings of France, named the most Christian king, and by whom all after him had the same name and nephew to Martel, the most valiantest prince that ever was. Next his bringing up under one Peter Pesain, of whom he was instruct both in Greek and Latin. Then his adolescency, which he passed in exercise of arms under his father in the wars of Aquitaine, where he learned also the Serezine's tongue. Being come to man's state, and now king of France, he subdued Aquitaine, Italy, Suaviland, and the Saxons, and these wars were so fortunate that he overcame his adversaries more by authority and wisdom than by effusion of blood. Also many other notable examples of virtue were in him in that age, especially that he edified the University of Paris. Here may by digression be declared how goodly a thing learning is in princes. Chiefly such condition appertaineth to virtue and a good living. Here may be also made comparison of his virtues in war, and of other agreeing with peace, in the which, as his history maketh mention, he was more excellent. For his chief delight was to have peace, and again he was so gentle and so merciful, that he would rather save even such as had done him great offence, and had deserved very well for to die, than to destroy them, though he might do it conveniently. Beside this, he was so greatly inflamed in the love of God and his holy church, that one Alcuin, a noble clerk of England, was continually with him, in whose preaching and other ghostly communication he had chief pleasure. His old age he passed in rest and quietness, fortunately, save for one thing, that his sons agreed evil between them. 
After his decease reigned his son, Holy St. Louis, and so the followings of his death were such that they could be no better, and a very great token of his good and virtuous living. For if an ill tree can bring forth no good fruit, what shall we suppose of this noble King Charles, of whom came so virtuous and so holy a son? Truly, methinks that hither may be not inconveniently applied the sayings of the gospel, by their fruits ye shall know them. Of an oration demonstrative wherein an act is praised. When we will praise any manner of deed, the most apt preamble for that purpose shall be to say that the matter pertaineth to the commodities of them which hear us. Example. When the Romans had expelled their king, whom the historians call Tarquin the Proud, out of the city, and fully enacted that they would never have king to reign more over them, this Tarquinus went for aid and succor to the king of Tusque, which when he could by no means entreat the Romans to receive again their king, he came with all his puissance against the city, and there long space besieged the Romans by reason whereof great penury of wheat was in the city. And the king of Tusque had great trust that continuing the siege he should within a little longer space compel the Romans through famine to yield themselves. In the mean season, a young man of the city named Caius Mucius came to the senators and showed them that he was purposed if they would give him license to go forth of the city to do an act that should be for their great profit and wealth, whereupon when he had obtained license privily with weapon hid under his vesture, he came to the Tuscan's camp and got him among the thickest nigh to the tent where as the king sat with his chancellor paying the soldiers their wages. And by cause that they were almost of like apparel, and also the chancellor spake many things as a man being in authority, he could not tell whether of them was the king, nor he durst not ask, lest his demand would have berayed him, for as for language they had one, and nothing was different. For both Tuscans and Romans were all of Italy, as in times past. England hath had many kings, though the language and people were one. And thus being in doubt whether of them he might step unto, by chance he strike the chancellor instead of the king, and slew him. Wherefore, when he was taken and brought before the king, for to punish his hand that had failed in taking one for another, and again to show the king how little he cared for his menaces, he thrust his hand into the fire, which at that time was there prepared for sacrifice, and there in the flame let it burn, not once moving it. The king, greatly marvelling at his audacity and hardy nature, commended him greatly thereof, and bade him go his way free, for the which, as though he would make the king a great amends, he feigned that three hundred of the noblest young men of Rome had conspired together in like manner, every one after another unawares to slay him, and all to put their bodies and lives in hazard, till time should chance that one might achieve their intent. For fear whereof the king forthwith fell at an appointment with the Romans, and departed. The young man afterward was named Scyvela, which is as much to say in English as left-handed. For as I have rehearsed afore, he burnt his right hand, so that he had lost the use thereof. If any orator would in an oration commend this deed, 
he might conveniently make the preface on this fashion. There is no doubt, my lords and masters of Rome, but that the remembrance of Scrivola's name is very pleasant unto your audience, which, with one act that he did, endowed your city with many and great commodities, etc. This manner of preface is most convenient and best annexed to such manner of orations demonstratives. Nevertheless, it is lawful for us to take our preface, if it be our pleasure, out of some circumstance, as out of the place that our oration is made in, or out of the time that we spake in, or else otherwise according as we shall have occasion. As Tully, in the oration that he made for the restitution of Marcus Marcellus, in the which he praiseth Caesar for the calling home of the said Marcus Marcellus, out of exile, he taketh his preamble out of the time and Caesar's person, beginning thus. This day, my lord senators, hath made an end of the long silence that I have kept a great while, not for any fear that I had, but part for great sorrow that was in me, and partly for shame. This day, as I said, hath taken away that long silence, yea, and beside that of new brought to me lust and mind to speak what I would and what I thought most expedient, like as I was afore wont to do. For I cannot in no manner of wise refrain, but I must needs speak of the great meekness of Caesar, of the graciousness that is in him, so abundant and so great withal, that never afore any such hath been wont to be seen or heard of, and also of the excellent good moderation of all things which is in him that hath all in his own mere power. Nor I cannot let pass this excellent, incredible, and divine wisdom unspoken of afore you at this time. Of the narration. In this kind we use but seldom whole narrations, unless we make our oration afore them that know not the history of the act or deed which we be about to praise. But instead of a narration, we use a proposition on this manner. Among all the noble deeds, Caesar, that you have done, there is none that is more worthy to be praised than this restitution of Mark Marcel. Of confirmation, which is the first part of contention. The places of confirmation are honesty, profit, lightness or hardness of the deed. For after the prohem of the oration and the narration, then go we to the proving of our matter first showing that it was a very honest deed, and next that it was not all only honesty, but also profitable. Thirdly, as concerning the easiness or difficulty, the praise thereof must be considered, part in the doer and part in the deed. An easy deed deserveth no great praise, but an hard and an jeopardous thing, the sooner and the lightlier it is achieved, the more it is to be lauded. The honesty of the cause is fet from the nature of the thing that is spoken of, which place lieth in the wit of the orator, and may also be fet out of the philosopher's books. It is also copiously declared of rhetoricians, and very compendiously handled of Erasmus in his book, entitled Of the Manner and Craft to Make Epistles, in the chapter of A Persuading Epistle. The profit of the deed or the commodity may be set at the circumstance of it. Circumstances are these. What was done? Who did it? When? Where it was done? Among whom? 
and by whose help. As if one would praise Scyvalus' act, of the which mention was made afore, he may, when he cometh to the places of contention, show first how honest a deed it is for any man to put his life in jeopardy for the defence of his country, which is so much the more to be commended that it came of his own mind, and not by the instigation of any other, and how profitable it was to the city to remove so strong and so puissant an enemy by so good and crafty policy. What time the city was not well assured of all men's minds that were within the walls, considering that but a little afore many noble young men were detect of treason in the same business. And then also the city was almost destitute of vitals and all other commodities necessary for the defense. Likewise, easiness or difficulty are contained in the circumstances of the cause, as in the example now spoken of, what an hard enterprise it is for one man to enter into a king's army and to come to the king's pavilion in the face of his soldiers to adventure to slay him. Of the second part of contention called confutation. Confutation is the foiling of such arguments as may be induced against our purpose, which part is but little used in an oration demonstrative. Nevertheless, sometime may chance a thing that must be either defended or else at the least excused as if any man would speak of Camilla's deed whereby he recovered his country and delivered it from the hands of the Frenchmen. Here must be declared that the bargain made afore was not by Camilla's violet. Of the conclusion. The conclusion is made of a brief enumeration of such things that we have spoken of afore in the oration, and in moving of affections. In delectable things, or such things that have been well done, we move our audience to rejoice thereat, and to do like. In sad things, and heavy, to be sorry for them. In ill and perverse acts, to beware that they follow not them to their great shame and confusion. Of an oration demonstrative, wherein are praised neither persons nor acts, but some other thing, as religion, matrimony, or such other. The best beginning will be if it be taken out of some high praise of the thing, but a man may also begin otherwise, either at his own person, or at theirs afore whom he speaketh, or at the place in the which he speaketh, or at the season present, or otherwise, as hath afore been specified. And here must we take good heed that if we take upon us to praise anything that is not praiseworthy, then must we use insinuation and excuse the turpitude, either by examples or by arguments, as Erasmus doth in his epistle prefixed afore his oration made to the praise of foolishness, of which I have let pass the translation because the epistle is somewhat long. The narration. In this manner of oration is no narration, but instead thereof the rhetoricians all only propose the matter, and this proposition is in the stead of the narration. A very elegant example is in the oration that Angel Politaine made to the Laud of Histories, which is this. Among all manner of writers by whom either the Greek tongue or the Latin hath been in flower and excellence, without doubt, 
me seemeth that they did most profit to mankind by whom the excellent deeds of nations princes or valiant men have been truly described and put in chronicles likewise if a man praise peace and show what a commodious thing it is he may make such a proposition among all the things which pertain to man's commodity of whatsoever condition or nature soever they be none is so excellent and so worthy to be had in honour and love as is peace the confirmation the places of confirmation be in this oration the same that were in the other of whom mention was made afore honesty profit easiness or difficulty honesty is considered in the nature of the thing also in the persons that have exercised it and the inventors thereof and in the author of it as in the law of matrimony be considered the author thereof which was god himself the antiquity that was made in this first beginning of the world and continued as reason is to this hour in great honour and reverence the persons that have used it were both patriarchs as abraham prophets as david apostles as saint peter martyrs saint eustace and confessors as saint edward and which thing was first proposed the nature thereof is such that without it man should be like unto beast unless all generations should be put apart and the commandment of almighty god not regarded who bade man and woman should engender and multiply profit and easiness is considered in the circumstances examples may be taken out of polycyon's orations made to the laud of histories and two orations of erasmus one to the laud of physic and the other to the laud of matrimony of confutation confutation hath contrary places to confirmation of the conclusion the period or conclusion standeth in the brief enumeration of things spoken afore and in moving the affections as hath been above expressed end of section seven